0: No, Father, there's something about singing about your faithfulness that delights our souls. We who know you and who have been your children by your grace for years know what it is to have you pour out upon us grace upon grace. And so we of all people feel like those men that Jesus talked about, the one that found the treasure in the field and sold everything to purchase it, and the merchant who found the pearl of great price and sold everything he had to purchase it. It was costly, but oh, how glorious and worthwhile, paying dividends to eternity. This faith that we have in you pays dividends to eternity because you are faithful. And so we praise you for it, and we ask you now, Holy Spirit, would you come, you who are here, come and speak to our hearts and convict us and encourage us and strengthen us, give us discernment, protect us from error, we pray, all for the glory of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Now that you're seated... Why don't we stand together and let's read our text for this morning, John 6. And this morning, by God's grace, we will finish John chapter 6. And uh, all God's people said, (laughs) maybe you should say, wait and see, you know, we'll see. John 6, beginning with verse 59. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples were grumbling at this, said to them Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are Spirit and life, but there are some of you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And so Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away also? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Now he met Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. It's ironic that we would pray a blessing at the end of reading that treachery. And yet that's the story of Jesus' life. That's the story of the gospel. It is the core of the gospel. And this is kind of a dismal tale of betrayal, yes, future betrayal, hidden betrayal, and immediate apostasy where a lot of people leave him. One of the key elements of this passage is that again and again, in fact, three times here, uh, John refers to this larger group. If you can imagine three consecutive circles, you've got Jesus and the 12, they are the kind of the core group, and then you've got uh, this other group they call the disciples, which is a pretty, pretty big group of people, and that group comes out of this larger crowd that was there at the feeding of the 5,000, which again may have been upwards to 15, 20,000 people. And so the big group's no longer there. They couldn't all go to the synagogue. So we've got a relatively large group that followed him across the, or around the Sea of Galilee after he fed the 5,000. And he comes to the synagogue, and there they are listening to him, and they take great offense. And nevertheless, John calls them, this group, the disciples. And, and that brings me to a question Do you consider yourself a disciple? You consider yourself a follower of Jesus? Are you a disciple of Jesus? And if you would say, yes, I am a disciple of Jesus, I would then ask you, what is a disciple of Jesus? What is a disciple of Jesus? Does it simply mean that you believe in him? Does it mean that you like him? I like Jesus. Um. Does it mean that you you want to be associated with him and his people? What does it mean to be a disciple? Have you thought about that? If you are a disciple, what do you mean by I am a disciple? And the text before us this morning begs this question, it pleads with us to wrestle with this question. Now, I'll just tell you ahead of time, when we're wrestling with these kinds of issues, these are, these are not happy, slap on the back, you know, kind of touchy-feely issues. This is sobering. This is deep. This is relevant, extremely relevant. And, and I'll tell you why um, it's relevant, because there are people in the body, there are people in every church who, who believe they're saved and they're not. But it's relevant for me because my job is to come to you week after week Assuming that not everyone here knows the Lord, and some are self-deceived. My job primarily is to speak to the church, to equip you, to encourage you, to help you learn to worship better and be more obedient and know the joy of walking in fellowship with God. Yes, all of that is true, but not to the neglect of the reality that there are some in the body who need to be warned. And so... I'll just tell you, the tone of this is is more of a warning kind of of sermon. The weeks that Jesus invested in Galilee leading up to John chapter 6 was frankly the high point of his ministry. There would never be another occasion where so many people claimed to be Jesus' disciples and were willing to follow him geographically wherever he went. These people had to walk a long way. Some of them came by boats, some of them came by foot. They eventually found him. They were willing to do whatever it took to get to be near Jesus. They were his disciples. They, they believed in him at some level. In fact, some of them probably even were beginning to believe that he was the Messiah. They saw his miracles. They ate the feast that he created when he multiplied the loaves and the fish there in the wilderness. Um, no doubt most of them were coming to the conclusion that this is at least the prophet that Moses predicted would come, which may have been the Messiah, or he may indeed be the Messiah, but even that, their idea of what the Messiah was, wasn't exactly what Jesus came to do. Um, Nevertheless, even though all of this was true about this larger group, they were not necessarily truly Jesus' disciples. When you read the Gospels, you have to wrestle with this, especially John. And you've got to be so aware that when John says Jesus was speaking to his disciples, and he said this to his disciples, and the disciples believed, you need to ask yourself the question, who? Who are these disciples? Because not all of these disciples are disciples indeed, as is the case here. So when the crowd caught up with Jesus at the synagogue, at Capernaum, we're not sure how all this works. The synagogues weren't very big, but here we got a pretty big group. And the, the thinking is that after he did his teaching, uh, they kind of went outside for discussion, and there was lots of discussion, apparently, about what Jesus said. And um, so there they were. They caught up with him at the the synagogue at Capernaum, and he taught them what we call the Bread of Life discourse, and When he taught the Bread of Life discourse, I mean, Bread of Life, that sounds very very compelling, very energizing, uh, very life-giving, very happy, very positive, but it wasn't. It wasn't. This was a really, really hard sermon. And because of it, the allegiance of the crowd was sorely tested. Their allegiance to Jesus was, was really put in the sifter and shaken really, really hard. The truth about what he came to do, where he came from, and what he was doing here was plain in this sermon, as were the qualifications for eternal life that he offered. Unfortunately, his his teaching wasn't compatible with what his audience believed should be true about him. They imagined him To be one who would dispense food limitlessly, some of them. Some of them imagined that he would be there to heal their diseases perpetually. Um, Some of them expected him to be king and were willing to try to make him king by force because of his powers so that he, he might perhaps overthrow Rome. But it was becoming, as this sermon went on, it was becoming more and more clear that Jesus didn't have any intention of doing any of those things, and that really rattled these people. And what we have here is, if you can imagine this, I'll say it and then I'll explain it. Here's Jesus, who will be judge, who is king, who was certainly Lord when he came, though he came as a servant. He was their God, and yet... While they should have been on their faces before him, submitting to him, worshiping him, loving him, listening to him, obeying him, rather they put themselves as judge over him. It's what C.S. Lewis calls God in the dock. I remember when I was a teenager uh, seeing that title C.S. Lewis, I had read some of his stories and uh, one of his uh, more theological works. And, uh, and not everything that C.S. Lewis is, is worthy of you adopting, certainly his view of the atonement was wrong. Nevertheless, he had this book, and it was called God in the Dock. Now, how many of you know what a dock is? I didn't have any idea what a dock was. I was thinking, how do boats fit into this? How does water fit into this? What is a dock? How many of you know what a dock is in that context? Wow. I love the second service. You guys are, I don't know. I only got two out of the first service who knew what the dock was. Here's what the dock is. I didn't know either. I really was oblivious to this, and it made no sense to me. God in the dock. Okay, think of a, a courtroom in England, old English courtroom. Maybe they still do this today. Um, but you've got, you've got the judge up on a high bench, and then you've got this expanse where the, the lawyers are, and then you've got the convicted person or a witness. In this case, a convicted person or a, a person who is being tried, not convicted, but being tried. And he is in this elevated box. They climb some stairs and they get on this elevated platform that's got a rail around it like a box. And it was called the dock. And so when C.S. Lewis talked about God in the dock, he meant God on trial. And that's what these people were doing with him. They were putting God on trial. And that may seem terribly irrelevant to us, but it's not. And we'll see why as we go. Commentator Leon Morris wrote that when Jesus preached this message, his claims for himself and his claim his followers were such, listen to this, that it was no longer possible to follow him unreflectively and without committing oneself one way or another. Years ago, uh, I read Shadow of the Almighty. I love reading biographies. I'm not reading one right now, but I, I ought to be, and so should you. Um, but the biography of Jim Elliot and the Ecuador Five—you know—who went down to the Carreiro River and they were killed by the Waldanis. they were called the Alcas then—and uh, um, but that's not the only book Elizabeth Elliot um, published. One of the things she published was that one, and another one that about their relationship. And then she published his journals. And I was for a period of time there was immersing myself in Jim Elliot, and uh, he was such an incredible young man. And one of the things that I found in Jim Elliott's journal was this. He resolved that, he said, I have resolved that with every person I meet, I will be a fork in the road. They will either trust Christ after meeting me or they will reject him, but they will not leave my presence without making a decision. Jesus Christ, and I don't know how successful Jim Elliot was with that, but it was admirable that he did that, and I know he was a, a faithful evangelist. But My point is, if Jim Elliot was the shadow of that, Jesus was the substance. Because every time somebody met Jesus, they came in a fork in the road. You've got to make choices if you're going to stand in front of me. You're either going to love me and worship me and find your joy in me and be rescued by me, or you will reject me. And that's where he is with these people. They could no longer just passively enjoy his presence. They had to make a choice. And this became a major turning point in Jesus' ministry because it was here that the true disciples were sifted from the false disciples and the large crowds dwindled to a very small band of faithful followers. And all of this begs the question, a personal question, a little personal application. Why are you following Jesus? You're here. I assume you are. Or you're listening to this message in some electronic means. Why do you claim to be Jesus' disciple? What is it that you want from him? What is, what is it that you expect of him? Some think following Jesus will make them wealthy so that they can experience their best life now. And I always think when I see the title of that book, if this is your best life now, what comes after that? It, it, it can't be any better if this is your best. Others follow Jesus because they think um, they think maybe Jesus will rescue their marriage or fix their business or keep their loved ones safe or or make sense of their past or whatever it is. They have some ulterior motive that is not Jesus's motive, not his purpose. These are not what Jesus promised. Now, I understand that if you're living by biblical principles, your your business might do better. Your, your marriage is, is surely going to do better. I mean, if, if you're both working on it in a biblical manner, I hope that's true. I mean, we, we see that in our counseling ministry all the time. We help people learn to apply biblical principles. They've got the Holy Spirit in their lives, and they They get better, and they do better with their children, and they do just everything in their life they do better with. That doesn't mean they don't face trials. They do, and sometimes get cancer and all of that stuff, but there is a blessedness that comes with obeying the Word of God. Nevertheless, that's not what Jesus came to offer. He came to offer himself as the propitiation for our sins. He came to offer uh, us the bread of life, a bread that you must not only believe, you must eat. Um, and and this crowd was was just not there. And so here's the question, why do you follow Jesus? And what will happen when your expectations collide head-on with his purposes? There are really only two choices, because when you come face-to-face with him, you are going to come to a fork in the road. You can submit your expectations to his word, or you can turn your back on him and stop being his disciple. There's actually a third choice, which is worse, which we'll see here in just a minute. So, the next question that I have is this. How do you know if you're a true disciple? Now, let me just say, before I answer that question, I am preaching a specific text of scripture this is not a systematic theology on soteriology we're not studying the doctrine of salvation we're merely looking at the warning that Jesus gives here so if all we have is this text you're going to come away with questions about does this mean if I have any doubts that are you saying I'm lost not saying that I'm saying let's look at this passage and be appropriately warned okay so how do you know if you're a true disciple Number one, let's let's start with the negative because that's where he starts in the text. You may be a false disciple if you are offended by God's word. You may be a a false disciple if you are offended by God's word. In fifty nine through fifty through sixty six, this is what Jesus is addressing. This is what he's addressing. One of the characteristics of this chapter is that there are several hard sayings of Jesus. I think there was one in particular that really pushed these people over the ledge, metaphorically speaking. But um, that wasn't the only difficult statement. And I'll point that one out as we go. But look at verse 26 of chapter 6. He actually accuses them of following him for the wrong reason. I mean, you would think, I mean, if this were any politician... He wouldn't care the reason as long as you're following and sending in your money. Not so with Jesus. He knew they were following him for the wrong reason, and they, he called them out. Look, you're not following me because you've interpreted the signs correctly. You're following me for the food. Verse 26. Verse 35. He calls himself the bread of life, and he claims, now, now listen to this claim, and understand the context here as he's speaking to Jews who attach themselves to two men, Abraham and Moses. Well, in reverse order. Moses and Abraham. They love Moses. I mean, Moses was great. Moses was the closest thing to the Messiah ever. And really, crossing the Red Sea was Jewish salvation, just like we look at the cross. That big a deal. And yet, he, he, what he does is he claims that he is the bread of life and that he has what he has to offer is more life-giving than the manna of Moses. Okay, at this point... They're getting kind of upset at him. You're better than Moses. You're better than Moses. And then verse 38, he claims to have come down actually, like manna, he claims to come down from the Father, and implicit in all of that is, is, listen, the manna was just a shadow. I am the substance. The manna was kind of life that came down of, out of heaven. It really, I mean, everybody who ate it is dead now, so we know that it didn't give eternal life. That's what Jesus argues in John chapter 6. But the life that comes down out of heaven, namely me, the bread that comes down out of heaven, I give eternal life. Eat me and you'll never die. And for them, this isn't better news. This is worse. Now they're thinking Jesus is a little bit loony. Verse 40, he claims to be the source of eternal life. In case you missed the implication of the manna thing, he makes it obvious. I'm the source of eternal life. Look at verse 44. He claims that no one has the capacity even to believe in him unless the Father draws them. And he says it twice. And then in verse 54, this is the one that really got him. Jewish people were not allowed to eat anything. They didn't have the blood drained from it. And yet, he claims that the qualification for eternal life is that one must eat his flesh and drink his blood. Now, if you weren't here last time for that, the title of the message is, Eating is Believing. The definition of eating in this passage is believing. And what are you Believing. You're believing what Jesus in his humanity accomplished on the cross or will accomplish on the cross in this context. But they didn't, they didn't raise their hand. They didn't want to know what he meant. They didn't see it as a metaphor. They just took offense. And then verse 62, he intimates that one day he will rise back into heaven in a visible manner and that people will actually see him go. Now they think he's delusional. In verse 65, he again says, No one can come unto me unless it has been granted to them by the Father. You know, everybody understands you don't believe in me. You're making it very, very clear that you don't believe in me. You all know that each other, you know, none of you believes in me. That's, that's understood, and here's why you don't believe in me. It's not because I'm unworthy of, of belief. It's because my Father has not granted you the privilege of knowing They were furious. They were furious. And let me ask you, I mean, when I read through this stuff, any of these statements bother you? Or any part of the word of God bother you? Do you find this statement about eating his flesh and drinking his blood repulsive? My God would never ask me to do that. Or perhaps that bit about, only being able to believe in Jesus if the Father allows you to. Does the first thing that comes to your mind, that sounds like Calvinism. <laughs> Cal- Calvin would be born for another 1,500 years. This is Jesus. You take offense at that? Do you cringe when you read these kinds of things? If you do, you're in good company because this, this whole crowd took offense. It's important to note here, three times, as I mentioned before in this passage, John refers to this group as Jesus' disciples. He even uses the personal pronoun, his disciples. But are they really his disciples? And the answer to that question is really yes and no. There are two ways to answer that question. If we're talking technically by definition, then yes, they were his disciples. The Greek word mathetes means student of or follower of someone, a rabbi, a philosopher, whatever, a disciple, one who follows another. And so were they following him? Yes. They were following on foot. They were following literally. They were, I mean, wherever he went, they they just kind of tagged along behind. He had this big group of groupies who just followed him. And, And so technically, they were his disciples. But at the same time, were they truly his disciples? Well, how can we tell? Well, um, look at the way they respond to him, verse 60. Therefore, what's the therefore therefore? It's pointing back to what he has said. After saying these things, therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? And and you can really get the sense of this better if we tweak the wording a little bit. Here's what they're actually saying. This is a hard statement. We will not listen to it. Verse 61. Same group, the same disciples grumble about his teaching. In other words, they voiced their opposition to one another about what he was saying And finally, we know these were not truly his disciples because verse 66 says, As a result, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Now they are not only not spiritually his disciples, they're not even technically his disciples. They quit following him. And notice, too, that John attributes all of this not merely to disagreement about some theological point, but he attributes it to unbelief. Unbelief. Unbelief is at the heart of all of this. And so look at verse 60. Um, I'll start with verse 61. But Jesus, conscious of, the, of his disciples, that his disciples, that's this group, grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? Are you offended at what I said? Verse 62. Verse 62. What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Let me say again something that I've repeatedly said in the past. The miracles were only there. He did miracles, not for miracles' sake. He did miracles to verify the teaching of his words. It's his words that matter. It's his words that give life. Listen, he fed 5,000 people with five loaves, right? And how many of them truly believed? Well, it appears here they're all leaving, or most of them. The miracle didn't create faith. Miracles, uh, true miracles in his day, in Jesus' day, in the apostles' day, confirm faith, but they don't create faith. Where does faith come from? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the words of Christ, the Word of God. They didn't want to hear His words; they were offended at His words. In verse forty-six. There are some of you who do not believe. That was the crux of the issue. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. And so we know that many, perhaps most of those who were following Jesus in his Galilean ministry were technically but not truly his disciples. They imagined Jesus to be something he was not. And when it became apparent that he was not going to change, they left. They renounced their discipleship they turned apostate. I think it's important to note here, however, that it is possible to be a false disciple and never leave. Here's the third category. You can come face to face with Jesus and accept him, accept his teaching, humble yourself before him, delight in in. Having fellowship with him and living in obedience to him and all of those things, that's one way. Or you can outright reject him and walk away from him, but there's this third category which is so much worse. And the third category is you can reject him but not leave him. You say, Can you can you give me a, a case on that? Yep. <laughs> I didn't read the whole verse in verse sixty five. For this reason, I have said to you, that one, uh, no one can come to me unless the Father has been has granted, unless it is granted by the Father. He says, as a result, many left. As a result, many left. Um, no, no, no. Verse sixty four. But there are some of you who do not believe. There it is. For Jesus knew, from the beginning, who they were who did not believe, and watch this, and who it was. It's a different person. Who it was who would betray him. There was one who didn't leave. He didn't leave. He disagreed with him, but he didn't leave. He was offended by him, but he didn't leave. He never openly objected to his teaching. He never grumbled out loud, at least to Jesus' teaching. He grumbled about other things. He grumbled about what other people did. You remember that lady comes in, uh, Jesus is, is reclining at the table, and she breaks the, the bottle of perfume, and she, she pours it on Jesus' feet and wipes it with her hair, and she's weeping and worshiping. You remember that? And, uh, and the Pharisees who were there didn't like that at all. And you remember what Judas said? Why was this not sold for, what was it, 300 denarii and given to the poor? And the author in that point says, he wasn't concerned about the poor. He was the one who carried the money. and, And he pilfered it whenever he wanted it. But he didn't leave. He never openly said, Jesus, I can't accept your teaching. This is too hard. I'm not going to listen to this. Nevertheless, his heart was full of unbelief. His heart was full of unbelief. Beloved, this is far more common in our day than we realize. There are people who sit in church week after week because their friends are here, or they have good business prospects, here, and I don't think so much here, because um, we, we go out of our way to communicate to people. Please don't use this as a as an opportune time. Don't use Sunday morning as an opportune time to enhance your business. This isn't a place to look for br- business practices or, or, or prospects. Um, But for many people, they go to church because that's where you connect with the people in the community. And that's how you're going to grow your business. Is that why you're here? I hope not. And I don't don't suspect anyone either. You might be happy to know. (laughs) But I know that happens. Or maybe they're just here because they've always been here. They've secretly questioned and grumbled what God says, but they've always been here. Maybe they grew up here. Maybe you grew up here. Now, I realize that Oprah Winfrey is easy to pick on, and and I don't want to spend more than a second on this, but it's just a classic example. She claimed to be a Christian. She was, I think, part of a Baptist church or a, a, a church that at least said they believed the Bible. And she was in, sitting in church one day, and by her own testimony, and this is what she says. You can look it up online. I, I don't encourage you to do that, but... Um, she was listening one day and the pastor read a passage out of the Old Testament that says our God is a jealous God. I am a jealous God. And she said, I don't like that. My God is not a jealous God. And by her own admission, at that moment she decided, I'm done with this. And she invented her, her own religion. And a lot of women mostly follow her. Others take issue with God saying um How can a loving God, how can God be all-loving when he obviously allows so much sin and pain in the world? Or they conclude that God, uh, how can God who is all-living, if he is really all-loving, he cannot possibly expect me to endure the suffering of a hurtful marriage. Or if God is really all-loving, then how can he expect me to live under domineering legalistic parents? They know the Bible teaches otherwise, but they simply don't believe it. They know what God says in his word. They simply don't believe it. And that's a problem. It's a problem. Oh, my friend, this is, if you find yourself in this place, I told you this is going to be a warning message. And I love you, but I just need to warn you. It's because I love you that I'm warning you. You're in a dangerous place. You're in a really dangerous place. You're pretending to belong to God. You're hanging out with his people, and yet secretly, you don't love the word of God. It offends you at many points, maybe not all of it. The parts about God's love you like, the parts about his demands. You know there's demands in the gospel. You don't want God-making demands of your life. You don't want him to be a jealous God. You don't like discipline? I've got to warn you, you're, you're exercising unbelief of the same strain that these people who left Jesus were exercising. Really, that's the issue. It's faith or unbelief. And now I realize there are different shades of unbelief, right? There's the unbelief of a lost person, and there's the unbelief that every believer struggles with. I struggle with unbelief every day. Every time I'm tempted to sin, it's an issue of belief or unbelief. Will I believe him or will I choose not? And every time I sin, every time I sin, I exercise unbelief. And what I'm saying is, God, I know you said it's better for me if I do it your way, but I'm going to do it my way. I really believe my way is better. And that's what these people were saying on a grander scale. So much so that they turn apostate. And that's the difference between believers and unbelievers. We wrestle with unbelief, yes, but we don't abandon him. We don't abandon him. This is not how true disciples live. And so you might be a, a false disciple if God's word, God's demands on your life offends you. But the positive side of this is you might be a disciple if God's word gives you life. If you find life in God's Word, you might be a true disciple. And, and I express these both tentatively, again, because we're not dealing with a full soteriological discussion here. We're only dealing with this passage. And what we have is people who turn apostate and people who stay, stay true. They persevere. You might be a true apostle. I mean, no, you're not a true apostle. I take that back. Just delete that from the tape, okay? You might, you might be a true... What's the word I'm looking for? Disciple. <laughs> Thank you. Um, if the word of life, give, the the word of God gives you life, and you get up in the morning and, and read the word of God, you know when, when I sleep in and I do that sometimes, and I and I'm running here to the church late, and I didn't have time to be in the word, I just feel lifeless. I feel like I I just. I needed to eat more of the bread of life I needed to drink more of the water of life not to get more saved but just to have the life-giving refreshment of fellowshipping with God and so I get up in the morning and I sit in my favorite chair and I I read God's word and I and I journal about it and I journal as a discipline to force my mind I am I'm like that little that, that cartoon dog or whatever, you know, who goes, oh, squirrel. <laughs> so easily distracted. And so I journal to force my mind to focus on what I just read in the Word of God because I know there's gold here and I know my propensity is to miss it. And so I'm going to be in God's Word. I love God's Word. And so did, um, so did Jesus True disciples. Here's what Jesus said It is the Spirit who gives life. It's the Spirit that gives life. And then he says this, by contrast the flesh profits nothing. You know what flesh is? Flesh is a metaphor for your humanness. In other words, you're never going to get to a relationship with God by your pure logic, by pure human logic. You can read Aristotle, you can read Socrates, you can go with Plato. You can you can get all the wisdom of the world. It will never leave you. It'll never lead you to a personal relationship with God in Christ. It'll never happen. You know why? Because the only way you get that is if it comes to you from outside of yourself. The spirit must give life. The flesh is of no account. The flesh is not helpful. And that's why Paul says things of the Spirit are spiritually discerned. The person who is of the flesh cannot even understand the things of the Spirit. That doesn't mean they can't understand any parts of the Word of God. They can. It's literature. It is. But in terms of it giving life, they completely miss it. A desire to submit to it and obey it and love it, they never get that. Only the Spirit can give that. Only the Spirit can give that. Your logic isn't going to take you anywhere. In order to have a relationship with God, God must give us revelation. He must speak to us from outside of ourselves. And listen, this was even true of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were perfect, but they were not without need. And one of the things they needed was revelation. They needed God to tell them, don't eat that. Eat that and that and that. Because the day you eat that, you didn't know this before I told you, that's going to kill you. They needed revelation even before they sinned. God created us to be dependent on him. And when we choose to be independent from him, we break fellowship with him. We break away. We rebel by all appearances at the end of this chapter i mean think about this the end of chapter 6 i mean the tone on this um i mean the very last thing he talks about is judas iscariot the last two words were or three words to betray him i mean how uplifting is that this is a really downer i mean the, the end of this the end of this chapter imagine yourself being a disciple and i'm talking about true disciple you're talking about in fact jesus Uh, John gives us a new name here for the smallest of the groups. He doesn't doesn't call them the disciples anymore. This is the first place in John where we we find this special name for this group who perseveres. They are now called the Twelve. The Twelve. And um, they are the ones who stay true to the Lord. And what we see here is... um, The disciples, some of their beliefs were exactly the same as that of the crowd. When they interpreted the Old Testament scriptures, they saw Messiah ruling and reigning with a rod of iron, and he was gonna rescue Israel. That's why, you know, when he comes walking up to the city gate on Palm Sunday and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David, what does that mean? Who's David? King. You're son of the king, that means you're the prince. That means you're going to be king. And so they're worshiping Hosanna, which means save us, help us, save us, help us, king. And he didn't come to be king. And disciples held the same perspective. And so what is, what's going on in their mind? And we see it again and again. Are you going to establish your kingdom now? Are you Are going to establish your kingdom now? All these people are joining us. They're joining us. It's getting bigger. It's getting bigger. Can we sit at your right hand and at your left? Look at our crowds are getting bigger. And then all of a sudden Jesus preaches this sermon it's gone. I remember when um, Ronald Reagan was president. Some of you weren't alive when (laughs) Ronald Reagan was president, but um, this is not a political statement. I'm just making an analogy here. Uh, There were times when uh, Ronald Reagan came up with a speech and his aides say, don't say that. Don't say that. You are really going to upset people. Uh, Two in particular. When he called... um, uh, the Soviet Union, the evil empire. They told him, don't say that. People are going to get mad. They're not going to send money. They're you're not going to lose votes. And the other one was, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Don't say that. You're going to put yourself in a position where your opponents are going to look at you and say, look, that was a failure. That was a, look how weak the president is. That never happened. And his aides were saying, don't say those things. People are going to get upset. you gotta, you got to know While he's preaching this sermon, the disciples are going, Oh, 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 God, time out. Can we talk about this sermon? (laughs) Eat my flesh and drink my blood. Was that in the original script? I mean, that is not helping us build the kingdom. they didn't understand. Jesus would have no false disciples, he wasn't out to build crowds, he wasn't out to form a revolt. He came to seek and to save those who were lost. Jesus knows that they're feeling this way. They see all of these people, this crowd. They just say, look, Jesus, we're through with you. No more votes, no more money, no more support. We're out of here. And who's left? Well, the only people we know for sure are left. Maybe there's some more, but the only people we know for sure are the 12. And probably some wives and children and relatives. And here they are. They're kind of sitting on a log, as I imagine it in my mind. It's not in the Greek. And, and they're mopey. Almost as if, what just, what just happened? I mean, is, is it over? Is it over? Everybody's mad at us now? Is that all we've achieved? Is we've disenfranchised ourselves from everyone? And Jesus looks at them in verse 67. And he says to them, do you want to go away also? Do you? And this is great. Verse 68. Peter said to them, Peter's generally the spokesman for the group, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I think the King James says, you alone have the words of eternal life. Who else can we go to? Whom else can we go? It's it's kind of rabbi speak. You know, you might study under this rabbi and you might switch and go to that rabbi. And they're saying, look, there there isn't any rabbi like you. We've seen too much. And notice what he says. We have believed, and, and he could have said, we have believed you are the Holy One. But that's not all he says. He says this, we have believed and have come to know. And you know what that means? It means we've been watching you for a long time. And over the period of time that we've been following you, and I don't know how long that's been in this part of John, maybe a year or so, two years, we believe and we have been following and thinking and asking questions and hearing your answers and seeing your miracles, and we have concluded for ourselves that you are the Holy One of God. This is the second time Matthew says this. Remember, Jesus in Matthew, did I say Matthew? It's the second time Peter says this. In Matthew, Jesus is saying, who, does peop- who do people say that I am? And he says, some say it's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're the prophet. And he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It's the second time he said this. And it's essentially the same thing, worded differently. And notice how Jesus responds. Boy, I'm getting away from my notes. That always leads to trouble. Um... Jesus says this, did I I myself not choose you? In Matthew, he says, Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And Jesus' response here looks like a rebuke. It's almost, here's the best I can make of this, um, and I'm sure I read it somewhere this week, that um, what's going on here is Peter is now becoming pretty bold, and he's saying, Jesus, who else are we going to go to? Listen, we've done our homework on this. We've done the research. We've been on, we've been on the web. <laughs> and uh, we have concluded for ourselves that you are the Christ. And he says, didn't I choose you? Didn't I choose you? I chose you, Peter. You did not do this for yourself. I have just said two times, In chapter 6, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? And the implication there is, and I chose him to be one of my twelve. And I think one of the maybe 10,000 reasons... Jesus chose Judas, knowing what would happen with Judas. One of the reasons was to warn us that it's possible to be a technically a disciple of Christ, and yet inwardly you are none of his. And you're the only one who knows. You're the only one who knows. Now this business about Peter saying, You alone have the words of life. Beloved, I think that's the answer to every every question that we have, every tempting question when something really bad happens. I know some of you have endured cancer. Some of you are enduring cancer right now. Some of you have lost loved ones, some of you have lost jobs recently. Some of you have struggled with your past. Some of you struggle with where God might be leading you in the future. Some of you are really struggling financially. And when those moments hit, and boy, we've had our share. When those moments hit, you're at the fork in the road. You're standing in the face of Jesus, as it were. And maybe it's not a salvation event. Maybe it's not an apostasy or a salvation event. It might just be I've got to make a choice now either to believe or or not believe. And let me encourage you to say what Peter said. When you are tempted to distrust him, remind yourself, he's the only one who has the words of eternal life. Why would I want to go the other way? Why would I want to entrust myself to to someone else? Peter is essentially saying, Lord... Where else can we go? No one has ever taught like you. No one has ever loved like you. There are things that, that we don't frankly understand, and there are requirements that you place upon us that we don't necessarily like, but you alone have the words of eternal life. We trust you, even though we don't fully understand you. You see that here? You alone are Lord. and We are done looking for a better God. We are through with looking for another worldview, another philosophy of life, a better Savior, a better Lord, a better treasure, a better friend. We are done with that. We're done looking for another master. We are yours. We belong to you. No matter what. And My friends, this is the mark of a true disciple. Again, it's not the, I keep saying the mark, it's not the only mark. And there will be times when you choose unbelief, and that doesn't necessarily mean you are not a child of God. But if your life, at the core if your life is unbelief, be warned. Be warned. A true disciple is not one who comes to Christ with expectations and demands. He is not one who who will stay committed so long as he gets what he wants. He's someone who comes to the Lord Jesus Christ in full submission of his own will, his own desires, his own imagination, declaring, I will no longer govern my own life as I see fit. Take me and do with me whatever you please. I am no longer mine. I am yours. It's a mark of a true disciple. One of my favorite biographies, as you know, in fact, the favorite of all the biographies I've read is The uh, Life and Diary of David Brainerd, which was compiled by Jonathan Edwards. And um, some people think that uh, David Brainerd was a little bit emotionally unstable because he would say things like, today I read the word and prayed and prayed so long I forgot to eat and knew not how to stop. Praying, And there's nothing I delight more than to lay low with my face in the dust before my God. And I conclude, he's not emotionally unstable. He just knows God in ways that most of us have never tasted. Years ago, I read a, another book by a German pastor, He would be martyred by Hitler's Third Reich eventually. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and the book is The Cost of Discipleship. If you read it, you may not agree with everything that he's written, but I'm convinced the American church needs the message of this book at least as much as the Lutheran church needed it in Hitler's day. Speaking about discipleship, Bonhoeffer writes these words, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And that's exactly what Jesus says, right? Anyone who wishes to follow me must take up his cross daily, deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Say no to self, say yes to me. No to your emotions, yes to me. No to your godless will, yes to me. This is faith, that's unbelief. There is forgiveness, and that's the gospel but it's better for you to trust me. When Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. And Bonhoeffer expresses this, uh, develops this issue of discipleship by making a comparison between what he called cheap grace and costly grace. Now let me give you an idea of what that means. Costly grace just means it's going to cost you. It's going to be hard. And so let me just read a, a paragraph or so. Bonhoeffer writes, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace, however, is the hidden treasure in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, that which, uh, to buy which the merchant will sell all of his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out his eyes, and which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets to follow him. Costly grace is the gospel, which must be sought again and again, and the gist of, uh, the gist of which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it, co- it is a call to us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And it is grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God his life. And you were bought with a price by it. And what God, and, and what has cost God much cannot be cheap. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon the life of his son too dear a price to pay for your life, but to deliver him up for us all. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Grace is costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ and follow him, and yet it is grace because Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I just summarize all of that to say this, by saying this, costly grace is glorious grace. It will cost you much, but it is so much better for you than cheap grace. The cheap grace that says, I can have Jesus and do whatever I want. I can go to church and disregard God's word. I can be numbered among the disciples and have my own opinions about who God is and what he should do. And if I get mad at God, I have that right. On the day when the crowds abandoned Jesus, it must have been confusing and discouraging for the twelve. But their connection to Jesus was far deeper than any confusion or disappointment. They believed and came to know that no matter the circumstances, he was the Holy One of God. They had left everything to follow him, and they would not be ultimately disappointed. And beloved, this kind of perseverance is not simply a mark of unusual faithfulness. It is not a, a mark of uncommon loyalty or bravery. It is a kind of faithfulness that God expects from everyone who calls themselves a disciple of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 21 through 23 will instruct us on this. He says this, hear the gospel, and then I want you to hear a Condition. Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you with his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach if if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. It's perseverance. Perseverance. It's facing the difficulties of life, facing the confusing circumstances for which you have no answers, and saying, I will trust you anyway. You alone have the words of eternal life. I will not depart. I will not turn my back. You are my only hope, and I still believe. The author of Hebrews gave the definition of a Christian. What's the definition of a Christian? You should be thinking right now of what your definition of a Christian is. A definition. The definition of a Christian is a person who what? Is what the author of Hebrews says. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an unbelieving and evil heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today. What day is this? It's today, every day. So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, if... We hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. In 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, it is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. You say, are you talking about losing your salvation? No, (laughs) no, you can never lose that. And never lose it if you have it. And this is just a sample. Again and again and again and again and again in the New Testament, the inspired authors say be careful, be careful, be careful, because there is a kind of discipleship that is discipleship that is technical but not true. Don't deceive yourselves and don't be deceived. And so you see, beloved, true discipleship does not make demands. True discipleship does not make demands on Christ. It bows the knee before Him. It sits at Christ's feet to be instructed. It delights to have the privilege of relationship with Him. It endures the disappointments of life and the unanswered questions by faith until the end. And so let me exhort you. Trusting Jesus means trading your expectations. For the privilege of knowing him. And the promise of eternal life. It's worth it. It's worth it. Doing it God's way. Living in obedient joy before him. Is worth it. Even when you don't understand. Let's pray. Father you have called us to discipleship. And. We are your disciples. We are your followers. And I trust not just followers in name, but followers in deed. And so, Father, I praise you and I give you thanks that you have been so merciful to us as to give us eternal life. And I pray for anyone hearing my voice right now who is confused about life and they're asking the wrong questions and forgetting the reality that you alone, you alone have the words of eternal life. You alone are the bread of life. You are the water of life. And to turn to any other source, to turn to philosophy or entertainment or hedonism, to find life is a dead end. And so help us, Father, by your grace to persevere and to grow in grace and to become more dependent upon you and save, Lord, I pray, anyone here who is lost and all of it for their great joy, but ultimately to your awesome glory. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.